chapter 12, verses 1 through 21, verses 1 through 3. In the meantime, when there were together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod upon one another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear and closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Burkett notes, In this chapter, our blessed Savior furnishes his disciples with many instructions for the worthy discharge of their function in preaching the gospel. Particularly, he recommends unto them two gracious qualifications, namely, uprightness and sincerity, verses 1, 2, and 3. Secondly, courage and magnanimity, verses 4 and 5. 1. He recommends unto them the grace and virtue of sincerity. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Learn hence that hypocrisy is a dangerous leaven, which ministers and people are chiefly to beware of, and to preserve themselves from. Hypocrisy is a vice and visor. The face is a vice. The visor is virtue. God is pretended, self-intended. Hypocrisy is resembled to leaven, partly for its sourness, partly for its diffusiveness. Leaven is a piece of sourdough that diffuses itself into the whole mass or lump of bread with which it is mixed. Thus, hypocrisy spreads over all the man. All his duties, parts, and performances are leavened with it. Again, leaven is of a swelling as well as a spreading nature. It puffs up the dough, and so doth hypocrisy the heart. The Pharisees were a sour and proud sort of people. They were all for preeminence, chief places, chief seats, chief's titles, to be called rabbi, rabbi. In a word, as leaven is hardly discerned from good dough at first sight, so is hypocrisy hardly discerned and distinguished from sincerity. The Pharisees outwardly appeared righteous unto men, but within were full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Observe next the argument which Christ uses to dissuade men from hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. As if he had said, The day is coming, when a rotten and corrupt heart shall no longer pass under the visor and disguise of a demure look. In the day of judgment, hypocritical sinners shall walk naked. God, angels, and men shall see their shame. Learn hence that God will certainly ere long wash off all the varnish and paint which the hypocrite has put upon the face of his profession and lay him open to the terror of himself and the astonishment of the world. Verses 4 and 5. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you from whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Burkett notes, The second duty which our Savior presses upon his disciples is that of holy courage and resolution. As if Christ had said, the preaching of the gospel will stir up many enemies against you, which will malign and oppose you, vex and persecute you. But I say unto you, fear them not, who can only kill the body, but fear him who, if you fail your duty, can cast both body and soul into hell. Here note one, an unwarrantable fear condemned, and that is, the sinful, servile, slavish fear of man. Fear not them that kill the body. Two, a holy, awful, and prudential fear of the omnipotent God commanded. 
Fear him that is able to kill both body and soul. 3. The persons whom this duty of fear is recommended to and bound upon. Disciples, ministers, and ambassadors. All the friends of Christ. They not only may, but ought to fear him. Not only for his greatness and goodness, but upon the account of his punitive justice, as being able to cast both soul and body into hell. Such a fear is not only lawful, but laudable. Not only commendable, but commanded and not misbecoming the friends of Christ. The ministers of God may use arguments from fear of judgment, both to dissuade sin and to persuade to duty. It is not unsuitable for the best of saints to keep in heaven's way for fear of hell. Tis good to bid a friend fear when that fear tendeth to his good. Verses 6 and 7 Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God but even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The doctrine which our Savior preaches to his disciples, and that is the doctrine of divine providence, which concerns itself for the meanest of creatures. Even the birds of the air and the hairs on our head do fall within the compass of God's protecting care. Observe 2 the use which our Savior makes of this doctrine, namely to fortify his disciples' spirits against all distrustful fears and distracting cares. Learn hence, 1. That the consideration of divine care and gracious providence of God over us and ours ought to antidote our spirit against all distrustful fears whatsoever. If a hair from the head falls not to the ground without a providence, much less shall the head itself if the very excrements of the body, such are the hairs, be taken care of by God, surely the more noble parts of the body, but especially the noblest parts of ourselves, our soul, shall fall under his peculiar regard. Verse 8. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Burkett notes, Note here, 1, that not to confess Christ is in his account to deny him and to be ashamed of him. 2, that whosoever shall deny or be ashamed of Christ, either in his person, in his gospel, or in his members, or any fear or favor of man, shall with shame be disowned and eternally dejected by him at the dreadful judgment of the great day. Christ may be denied three ways, doctrinally, by an erroneous and heretical judgment, verbally, by oral expressions, vitally, by a wicked and unholy life, but woe unto that soul that denies Christ any of these ways. Verse 10. And whosoever speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Burkett notes, Although never man preached or lived as Christ did, yet there were those that spake against him. The person of Jesus was condemned and reproached for the meanness of his birth, for the poverty of his condition, for the freedom of his conversation. But this sin did not exclude the hope of pardon. Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. All the reproaches cast upon Christ as man were pardonable. But whosoever speaketh a word against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. That is, whoever affirms that divine power by which I do my miracles 
to be the power of the devil, such blasphemy will be unpardonable, because it is to resist the last remedy and to oppose the best means of men's conviction. For what could be done more to convince men that Christ was the true and promised Messiah than to work so many miracles before their eyes to that purpose? Now these miracles, though evidently wrought by the power of God, the Pharisee ascribed to the power of the devil, which our Savior calls blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, and is a sin unpardonable. Verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates in power, Take ye no thought how or what things ye shall answer, or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Burkett notes, Here our Savior acquaints his apostles that for preaching his doctrine and professing his religion, they should be brought before all sorts of magistrates and into all kinds of courts, but advises them, when they should be so brought, not to be anxiously thoughtful or solicitously careful what they should say, for it should be suggested to them by the Holy Ghost what they should speak in that hour. Thence note that though the truth of Christ may be opposed, yet the defenders of it shall never be ashamed, for rather than they shall want a tongue to plead for it, God himself will prompt them by his Holy Spirit and furnish them with such arguments to defend the truth as all their adversaries shall not be able to gainsay. In that hour the Holy Ghost shall teach you what ye ought to say. Verses 13 and 14. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divideth the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Burkett notes, Whilst our Savior was thus instructing his disciples and the rest of his auditors in things appertaining to the kingdom of heaven, one of the company, being more intent, as it seems, upon his temporal than his eternal concerns, desired him to speak to his brother to divide the inheritance with him. Christ tells him he would neither be judge nor arbiter in any civil affairs or secular concerns. This work, as if Christ had said, belongs to the civil magistrate to divide inheritances and decide controversies betwixt men and men. But my work is of another nature, namely to preach the gospel to a lost world and to direct man how to secure an inheritance in heaven not to divide inheritance here on earth, teaching us that matters of civil justice do not belong to those whom Christ sends forth to preach the gospel. That work alone is sufficient for them. The proper work of a minister is work enough, one branch of which is to manage a persuading task betwixt neighbor and neighbor, to prevent differences and to compose them. But as Christ's commissioners and ministers of the gospel, they have no authority to intermeddle in civil judgments. Who made me a judge over you, says our great master, that is, a judge in civil affairs. Verse 15. And he said unto them, Take heed, and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Burkett notes, Our Savior upon the occasion given him in the foregoing verses, admonishes all his disciples and followers to take heed and beware of the sin of covetousness assuring them that neither the comfort nor the continuance of man's life doth consist in an abundance. For though something of this world's good is necessary to the comfort and happiness of life, yet abundance is not necessary. Here observe one, the manner of our Lord's caution. He doubles it, not saying, take heed alone or beware only, but take heed and beware both. 
This argues that there is a strong inclination in our natures to this sin, the great danger we are in of falling into it, and of what fatal consequence it is to them in whom this sin reigns. Observe, too, the matter of the caution of the sin which our Savior warns his hearers against, and that is covetousness. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For under the name and notion of covetousness, our Savior did not condemn a provident care for the things of this life, nor a regular industry and diligence for attaining of them, nor every degree of love and affection to them. But by covetousness is to be understood an eager and insatiable desire after the things of this life, or using unjust ways and means to get or increase in a state, seeking the things of this life with the neglect of things infinitely better, and placing their chief happiness in riches. Observe 3. The reason of this caution. Because a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Human life is sustained by little, therefore abundance is not necessary, either to the support or comfort of it. Tis not a great estate and vast possessions that make a man happy in this world, but a mind suited to our condition, whatever that be. Verses 16-21 through 21. And he spake a parable unto them, saying that the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This I will do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be, which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich towards God. Burkett notes, The design and scope of our Savior in this parable is to show men the vileness and vanity of the sin of covetousness, or an eager and insatiable desire after the things of this world. When men heap up riches and lay up treasures in this life, taking no care to be rich towards God in faith and good works, our Savior illustrates this by the parable of a rich man whom God had blessed with great plenty. Yet his desire of more wealth was never satisfied, but he is projecting how we may lay up goods in store for many years. Where note one, that the parable doth not intimate any indirect and unjust ways of gain which this man used to increase his estate but condemns his insatiable desire and thirst after more, so that hence we may learn that an eager and inordinate desire after the things of this world, though it be free from injustice and doing wrong to others, is one species or kind of the sin of covetousness. Observe, too, how this rich man looked no further than himself, not looking upon himself as God's steward, but his own carver. He cries out, What shall I do, because I have no room where to lay my fruits? not considering that the houses of the poor should have been his granaries for the abundance of his increase. Charity to the necessitous is the best way of bestowing our abundance. God's extraordinary bounty is to be laid out for the relief of others' necessities, not for the gratifying of our own luxurious desires. Observe 3. The brand of infamy which the wise God fixes upon this covetous rich man. Thou fool, says God. Learn thence that it is an act and instance of the most egregious folly imaginable for persons to spend their time and strength in getting and laying up treasure upon earth, in the meantime neglecting to be rich towards God in faith and good works. Thou fool! Observe for the doleful tidings and threatening news brought unto him. This night 
thy soul shall be required of thee. Learn hence, one, that a man's wealth is not able to preserve his life, much less to save his soul. And if wealth cannot save a man's life, why should men endanger their lives, nay, hazard their souls, to get or increase wealth? Learn, too, that God takes away men's lives many times when they least suspect it. This night, says God, many years, says he, God will not have us think of rest in a place of disquiet, nor of certainty in a condition of inconstancy. We are dependent creatures, and our time is in God's hand. This night shall thy soul be taken away from thee. Learn three, that the souls of ungodly men are taken from them by force and compulsion. Thy soul shall be required of thee. Good men have the same reluctance of nature which others have, yet they sweetly resign their souls into the hand of God in a dying hour. Whereas a wicked man, though he sometimes dies by his own hand, yet he never dies with the consent of his own will. He chooses rather to eat dust with the serpent than return to dust. Observe 5. The Expository Question Whose then shall those things be which thou hast provided? Intimating 1. That they should not be his. A man's wealth lasts no longer than his life. Neither has he any longer the comfort of it. Lay up gold, and it perishes with thee. But treasure up grace, and it shall accompany thee. Who shall those things be? Not thine, undoubtedly. Two, as these things shall not be thine when thou art gone, so thou knowest not whose they shall be after thou art gone, whether they shall fall into the hands of a child or a stranger, of a wise man or a fool. The wealthiest man cannot be certain who shall be his heir and whose goods his shall be. Observe, lastly, the application which our Savior makes of this parable to his disciples. So is everyone that layeth up a treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Learn hence that such as are not rich in grace, rich in good works, shall find no benefit by and take no comfort in all their worldly riches in the time of their greatest need, at the hour of death and in the day of judgment. Learn farther how brutish and unworthy of a man it was for this person to cheer up his soul with the hopes of worldly provisions, to bid his soul eat, drink, and be merry. Alas, the soul can no more eat, drink, and be merry with carnal things than the body can with spiritual and immaterial things. It cannot feed upon bread that perishes, but bring it to a reconciled God in Christ, to the covenant of grace and sweet promises of the gospel, set before it the joys and comfort of the Spirit. And if it be a sanctified and renewed soul, it can make a rich feast upon these. Spiritual things are proper food for spiritual souls. Deservedly, then, is this person branded with the name fool for saying, Soul, thou hast goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry.